Hello and welcome to the last Stephanomics of 2019. In 12 months, we've been around the world many times with our reports from the front lines of the global economy, from the Fort Lauderdale boat show to the Canton Fair in Guangzhou, via Santiago, Berlin, South Central India, and a farm equipment factory in Broadhead, Wisconsin. We've also talked to many world-leading economists, including two winners of the Nobel Prize. Not bad when you consider that all the people involved in this podcast also have quite busy day jobs. And we're not putting our feet up this week just because it's Christmas. Oh no. Instead, you're going to hear from a third Nobel Prize winner, the economist Joe Stiglitz, a conversation I had with him recently in London when he was here to deliver a lecture on progressive capitalism at the London School of Economics. If progressive capitalism was on your Christmas list this year, you should listen in. But first a return trip to Vietnam, a country we've talked about surprisingly often here on Stephanomics. Now, if you paid attention then, you'll remember it's been a winner and a loser in the US-China trade wars. It's complicated. But what you probably don't know is that it might be about to light up your next Christmas. Here's our South Asia economy correspondent, Michelle Jambrisco, to explain. Christmas. Or, more specifically, the classic holiday movie, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You just heard the part when Clark Griswold drains all the electricity in the city to light up what must be a million bulbs covering his big suburban house. Americans have been putting lights up since they became affordable in the mid-20th century. It's a half-billion-dollar business, even if you only count those U.S. customers. And in recent years, virtually all the lights made in the world come from one place, China. As an American economic journalist based in Singapore, I found myself in a good position to explore this issue, as it touches on two major stories, the U.S.-China trade war, as well as the rise of Vietnam's economy. My colleague Nguyen Nguyen and I decided to head to a street in Hanoi's old quarter called Hang Ma, or Votive Street in English. It's a spectacularly colorful road whose shops are overflowing with Christmas decorations. At other times of the year, there are goods for holidays like Lunar New Year or paper products that are burned in rituals dedicated to lost loved ones. By early December, there are Santa suits, reindeer, wreaths, snowmen, garland, and Christmas lights as far as the eye can see. But even if it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, the mood this year feels a little bit off. We met a shopkeeper named Nguyen Quan Hui. He's 35 and has been selling on Hang Ma for five years. Sales have been slow this year due to two main reasons. One is because there are so many suppliers this year. They flooded the street with Chinese stuff. Secondly, it's people cutting down on spending this year. Take just one of those items flooding the streets, Christmas lights. For many years, China was essentially the only country in the world producing them. The data suggests that might be changing. Of course, the trade war has been waged not in the name of Christmas lights. It's supposed to be about America's ballooning trade deficit with China and allegations over intellectual property theft. 
But the supply chain for Christmas lights shows just how difficult it is for the U.S. to penalize China without also making things more difficult on American soil. We dug into U.S. Customs shipping data to figure it all out. Christmas lights actually have their own six-digit international code and category. U.S. imports from China of this specific item, by sea, have declined over the past year and a half, while those from Vietnam have surged from almost nothing. Other data, which include shipments by sea and air, show Cambodia is also sending a lot of Christmas lights to America. All this is happening after Christmas lights got caught up in the trade war. They were originally slapped with a 10% duty effective in September 2018. That went up to 25% in May of this year. And that phase one agreement between the U.S. and China to reduce tariffs on some goods? It doesn't cover Christmas lights, so the higher duties remain. What's more, Christmas lights are tangled in a bigger trend. Chinese companies are trying to find ways to offset lost business directly to the U.S. One solution is to route those same products through third countries for final production. Another is to find new customer bases, like Vietnam. Here's Jacques Morset, the World Bank's lead Vietnam economist, talking about Vietnam's dilemma. I think they're winning on a temporary basis because you have a price adjustment, so uh-huh. that's what's taking place. And I think it magnified what was taking place before, you know, moving from China to Vietnam. Mm. So, so I think it's a temporary gain. At the same time, this temporary gain doesn't have to be too big because otherwise you will be on the radar screen of the U.S. authorities. Morsey says the increase in the official data for Vietnam's exports is clear, but it isn't matched by figures on foreign direct investment, or FDI. That makes it more difficult to calculate how much Vietnam is winning and whether the winning can be sustained. You would expect a big increase in FDI from China. You don't see it in the data. For items like Christmas lights that have shown a discernible shift, and all too often from made in China to made in Vietnam, the trend is concerning for Vietnam's government. That's because Vietnam's stuck in a delicate balance, almost as if trying to learn how to win quietly in the trade war. Investors have cheered an economy that's growing at an almost 7% pace. Kyocera, Sharp, and Nintendo are among the big names that have been expanding in Vietnam amid the U.S.-China tensions. But Vietnam has also felt the sting of winning too much, In July, the U.S. slapped tariffs of more than 400% on steel from Vietnam. America accused the nation of not doing enough to prevent tariffed goods from being trafficked through their ports. Vietnamese customs officials have taken the charge seriously, especially this year. They see a high risk of trade fraud, and they talk about not wanting to be used as a pawn in the trade war. They're keeping a list of items that have drifted from Chinese origin to Vietnamese origin. What they don't want to see are new labels on an item that was actually completed elsewhere. So what does made in Vietnam actually mean? In the case of Christmas lights, it appears to mean finished or near-finished Chinese goods finding their way over the border before export. That's what another shopkeeper back on Hang Ma is seeing. Here's Nguyen Thi Ha. There are some local companies that brought material and parts from China and assembled them into these kinds of lights to sell. They can't produce by themselves because it will cost them way more than importing parts from China to assemble. Likewise, on the U.S. side, companies that import Christmas lights emphasize that the supply chain shifts couldn't happen overnight, even if they were enthusiastic to buy from Vietnam. Doug Topham, the owner of a business called Christmas Light Decorators in Arizona, said the search for a supplier outside of China has been fruitless. 
He's been importing Christmas lights from China since 2005 and was looking to avoid hefty tariff bills this year. He forwarded an email from one supplier who suggested that he falsify his invoice with a lower value to offset the tariffs. Others offered to repackage the lights either with an erroneous origin or with a different company name. Topham said he just wants to play by the rules. For this Christmas season, Topham kept his order similar to previous years, but he's looking elsewhere in Asia for next year's orders. He's unlikely to find a Vietnamese supplier. Several larger Vietnamese lighting companies don't produce Christmas lights specifically. They told us that they very much doubted that any Christmas lights exported from Vietnam were actually made by Vietnamese businesses. For those selling Christmas lights and other festive gear along Heng Ma, that's just fine. They don't see Vietnam trying to replicate the Chinese model of mass export of cheaper goods. Tran Nak An is a 53-year-old veteran shopkeeper on Heng Ma. Here's how she put it. Vietnamese companies cannot make these kinds of lights because it will cost them a lot more than Chinese products, so they can't compete. I haven't seen any locally made ones. When Chinese producers lower the prices of their products, the quality is also poorer. But it's very easy for us to sell this Chinese stuff because they have many new designs and the prices are so cheap. Some items just cost even less than a bubble tea or a bowl of pho. For those hawking goods along Heng Ma, further trade war peace could go a long way to making for a merrier Christmas next year. In the meantime, the price tag for Clark Griswold and everyone else is at high risk of staying more expensive. For Bloomberg News, this is Michelle Jamrisco. I wonder whether we'll hear from Vietnam again in 2020. But now, here's that conversation I had with the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joe Stiglitz here in London. So, Professor Joe Stiglitz, thank you very much uh, for taking the time in London. You were here uh, in London doing a lecture to the London School of Economics asking the question, is progressive capitalism an answer to America's problems? So, do you think it is? Uh, Yes, I do. (laughs) Uh, uh, Maybe I should explain what I mean by progressive capitalism. In a way, it's uh, a new contract between the market, the state, civil society. The market will play a role. Some people say uh, progressive capitalism is an oxymoron. I think you cannot run a complex society without some degree of decentralization and markets are going to play an important role, corporations are going to play a role in that uh, decentralization process. But the kind of unbalanced market economy, unfettered capitalism that we've had in the United States and in many other countries is the central cause of many of the problems the United States is facing. Uh, the growing inequality, uh, the opioid crisis, the child diabetes crisis, uh, the climate crisis that we have not responded to, and even to a large extent the political crisis. 
You say, I noticed in your speech you said that one of the reasons that we've got into a mess is that we fail to understand the true sources of growth. What, what do you mean by that? Well, the true source, the reason that we have such a higher standard of living today than we did 250 years ago after centuries and centuries of stagnation is the advances brought about by science and the advances in social organization, uh, running a complex, innovative manufacturing, post-manufacturing economy requires a lot of cooperation and coordination, it requires collective action, not only individuals acting individually. It needs regulations, it needs uh, uh, the role of the state to promote basic research, uh, infrastructure, technology, uh, technology uh, education. And the dominant doctrine, ideology of the last 40 years, neoliberalism, didn't pay attention to these foundations. And it made one more mistake. Uh, it confused what made individuals wealthy with what makes the wealth of a nation. So individuals can get wealthy by taking money from other individuals, by exploiting them, by using market power, by taking advantage of their vulnerabilities. And we see a lot of people becoming very wealthy through that kind of activity that economists refer to as rent-seeking or wealth-grabbing. Uh, the real source of the wealth of the nation are, are as I said, these big advances. Uh, the people who discovered DNA, uh, the people transistor, uh, lasers. Uh. Interestingly, none of these people are among the wealthiest people in our country. And among the wealthiest people are those who have become wealthy through rent-seeking. And of course, there are some people who made a contribution, achieved some degree of monopoly power, but really amplified their wealth through this kind of exploitation. I, I guess I should... A lot of people, uh, certainly some economists I've seen recently, have been highlighting how, how good the economy is looking relative to a lot of other past elections. If you look at the US, um, I saw one estimate that kind of the tailwinds for a presidential election, if you're looking at the level of unemployment, if you're looking at growth, if you're looking at the level of uh, inflation, mortgage rates, debt levels, are all actually much better than they have been in quite a long time. Even wages for the lower part of the wage spectrum, after a long time of, of stagnation, have actually been doing better in the last few years. So. Is this, is this critique sort of failing to notice what's actually happening out there? Oh, not at all. I mean, it, it's taking uh, not a quarter by quarter or month by month or day by day perspective. It's looking at it over a longer period of time. But even if you look uh, more narrowly what's been happening in the last few years, you see some uh, real indicators that things are not going well. Uh, growth, for instance, has slowed from 3.1% down to 1.9% after uh, a massive tax cut resulting in a trillion dollar deficit this year, probably the largest deficit that we've had in peacetime out of a recession, life expectancy is in decline. Uh, this should happen in a, a country where we're breaking all the frontiers in medical research. Uh, it's because we have a broken healthcare system. Students are graduating with massive amounts of debt that's strangling their ability to start a family and 
uh, live up to their uh, dreams and aspirations. Median income is stagnant. Real wages at the bottom are the same level as they were 60 years ago. Median income of a full-time male worker, the full-time men are the lucky ones, is the same as it was more than 40 years ago. This is not a picture that of a prosperous economy. The unemployment rate may be relatively low, but the employment rate is also relatively low. A lot of people have dropped out of the labor force. So when I see the picture of the economy, when I don't use a number like GDP, it, it, it is one of the indicators, but what really matters is how well ordinary citizens are doing. And in those terms, things aren't so rosy. I'm interested, I mean, you won your, your Nobel Prize for Economics uh, for your contribution to thinking about the way that information uh, play, produces market, well, information failures and mar market failures in general, asymmetries of, of knowledge and how they can contribute to, to inefficient uh, outcomes. Do you think, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or anyone else, you know, a lot of people recognize the market power of these massive internet companies globally is posing an unprecedented issue for economies everywhere that regulators and governments are really struggling with. Do you think that uh, sh there, she has a genuine answer? Do you think anyone has a, a, a rigorous approach to this? Yes, I do. The Clearly, the monopolies of the 21st century are different from Standard Oil and the monopolies of the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, it's very clear that uh, the antitrust laws or competition laws have not kept up with the changing economy. Um, our business leaders have had a kind of, uh, you might say, resolution to increase market power that has not been met with uh, a public response. In fact, a major school in economics, uh, the Chicago School, took the view that markets are naturally competitive, so don't worry about it. And actually, there's been a weakening of antitrust laws over the last 50 years. Uh, so I think there is now a lot of focus on where we made a mistake, both in weakening our competition laws and in not keeping up with the new challenges posed by the changes in our technology. I've been uh, participated in FTC hearings where these issues are, are uh, being discussed. And I think there is a, a growing consensus, at least of some elements that we need to begin with in making our economy more competitive once again. Do you think, I mean, I was looking at some of the rulings over the years, and there's a lot of people who've now written about how um, effective the internet companies have been, the likes of Google and Facebook, and actually resisting regulatory pressure, even to the point of not responding to letters and things. So I wonder, when, I mean, when you look at some of these issues, do you think, is there a question about whether they've just got too big to, to even respond to some of these challenges from government? Are they now bigger than any single government? They are uh, bigger than most governments. <laughs> uh, and what is so striking is the, the kind of arrogance that they've exhibited. Uh, they realize how powerful they are. Facebook famously signed an agreement to respect privacy and then went ahead and violated it. Well, uh, they were fined over $5 billion. So the, Which is nothing. It's, it's, I mean, it's nothing, a lot by regulator standpoint. But, but it's a lot by regulator standpoint, and they're put on notice. Yeah. 
that uh, they will be fined a lot more if they don't comply with regulations. Tim Cook, uh, the head of Apple, famously uh, said, uh, of course I'm not going to pay taxes. Uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, what he said in response to uh, what Apple did in, in Ireland. Uh, but then he said, but if you lower the tax rate, then I'll comply. In fact, you know, acting and say, you know, if you have a tax rate that I agree with, then I'll pay. But if you don't, of course I'm going to avoid taxes. Well, uh, countries around the world are saying, you know, this is not the way society functions. The remarkable thing is that these tech giants grew on the basis of government-funded research. The internet was a result of government spending. The first browser was a result of government spending. All the basic insights that have led to all these advances were a result of government spending. So they're willing to take, but they're not willing to reciprocate. And I think that that's not the basis of a social contract which can lead to a successful society. I should ask you um, about the Green New Deal, because I noticed we were talking recently in Beijing with Nick Stern, who had written a, uh, quite an important report on climate change in, uh, I think, about 10 years ago. I noticed that you actually led a big report on uh, environmental issues even longer ago, I think the mid-90s. If you, look, if you think about the challenges you saw it then and you see now how far we've come in terms of the warming of the planet, but also a new feeling of urgency, finally, on the political side. Do you think we are now in a better place, at least when it comes to confronting it, even though we've let a lot of time go by? Yeah, public perception is so much stronger uh, today, and, and scientific knowledge. Uh, when we did our report in 1995, we were aware that global warming would lead to more extreme events, but we didn't say that in our report because the there was not overwhelming evidence of that. Today there is overwhelming evidence. Uh, the U.S. has been losing almost 2% of GDP from these extreme events. People are realizing we got extreme cold, fires, uh, floods, hurricanes, cyclones, and uh, the young people particularly get it. And since the young people are going to be the future of our, of our world, uh, I am hopeful. I am worried that the you know, mistake that we made is we did not anticipate how fast things would change. And we understood that there was an urgency, but we didn't understand how urgent it was. Now we do, and the question is, are we responding fast enough? And that's the idea behind the Green New Deal. Uh, we need real mobilization to address this issue. And when you look, I mean, there are some who've said that the Green New Deal is just so ambitious um, and so aggressive in its timing that it could ultimately be, be counterproductive because of the sheer pace of what it's suggesting, you know, retrofitting every single building in the country within 10 years, uh, decarbonizing the economy within 10 years, which even the most committed experts in this field say is, is really not plausible. There's just not enough people in the workforce to do some of these things. I mean, do you think, uh, um, do you think it is potentially counterproductive or better to have a 
more urgent goal? I don't know. I, I think it's uh, really important to have an urgent goal. Uh, but the broader perspective that people have focused on, you know, carbon neutrality by 2050, I think that's clearly attainable. But uh, that isn't the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is something much more aggressive. I guess the question is, do you, do you make it harder to reach the reasonable goal by, make, by trying too hard and actually maybe imposing too aggressive changes on people? Uh, I think that what we need is a kind of wartime mobilization. And we need to do what we can. And, uh, you know, some of the things that people say are very difficult, aren't really that difficult. Putting insulation in housing. This does not require high-skilled labor. We have a lot of unskilled labor unemployment. We could train people to do it. Uh, so, to me, addressing these issues would actually make our economy stronger. If everybody were aware of the issue, if we commit ourselves to having finance to enable people to do the insulation that they need, which actually uh, would more than pay for itself, so they would actually be better off if they can get the finance to do it, um, I think we would have a very high take-up rate. So whether it's going to be 100% or even 50%, the real issue here is very quickly changing norms and expectations. And, uh, you know, we've been dawdling since we became aware of the problem more than 30 years ago. And uh, what the Green New Deal is, is really a statement, let's stop dawdling, let's start doing something. Do you think looking at where we are, looking at where policies are, um, that uh, the next recession will be another will produce another major crisis the way we've seen we saw in 2008 um, or do you look at that and say no this would be if you like a more normal recession but we will continue to have all the problems I identified yeah it will be uh, I, my my best bet is that it will be more like a more normal recession but coming on top of a situation where we haven't fully recovered from the last major downturn so that means that, that it will be in some sense, uglier, harder for a lot of the people at the bottom. And because interest rates are already very low, uh, monetary policy will be hard to respond. And because the U.S., for instance, squandered uh, fiscal policy, not using, uh, using it when we needed it in 2010, but using it when we didn't need it in 2017, uh, we will be in a much harder position to respond effectively. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next year with a special roundtable discussion on what to expect from the global economy in 2020. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love it if you took the time to rate and review our show. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. And you can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was written and reported by Michelle Jamrisko and Uyan Nguyen, with assistance from Kevin Varley. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Joe Stiglitz, Nazreen Siria and Hung Truong. 
The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. 